would receive very specifically would have to do with what God desires to do in New England. Now, let me say something to you. I hate to announce this in public. I just turned 40 in December. <laughs> I know, I don't look it, right? <laughs> but hold on, I'm just going to pause for a moment. When, when you're 16 and you're already immersed in the prayer and fasting movement, when you're 16 and you're hearing prophetic promises of revival in New England and missionary sending, when you're 18 and 20 and you're a part of mass gatherings like The Call and you're hearing a lot of prophetic promise, I'm going to tell you right now, nowhere in my imagination did I think that I would then be 40 and not see those things come to pass. Nowhere in me was I like, I'm going to be a four-year-old woman. <laughs> I'm going to be pastor of church. You know, all of those things. <laughs> because to be honest with you, and Daryl and I were talking about this the other day. I said, do you remember the time we weren't married? I was like, we got called out of that crowd. And like, they prophesied over both of us. And they were like, stadiums, stadiums fall. You know, you're like, and you know, they prophesy this word. And you're like, what? Like, that's not even on your radar when you're 18. I said to Daryl, you try to like perceive what does that mean? I said to Daryl, I said, I think that word happened. I've been involved with the call and stood on every platform with stadiums. But it's very possible that the man that heard the word stadiums then interpreted that or translated that to be something that it wasn't because he did hear a word from God or in our human finite understanding, we perceive it in a certain way, but ultimately we're not perceiving. And I did say to Daryl, I'm not saying that we maybe, maybe there'll be another call in Boston. Maybe there'll be more stadiums. But what I'm saying to you in a very real sense, that word could have already come to pass. And the glimpse that that man saw and was envisioning us for that we have participated in. And to be honest with you, I'm not saying, I'm believing for hundreds of thousands of missionaries sent here from the colleges of the Northeast. I believe it. I'm contending for it. But to some degree, if over the next 10 years, if we see 200 sent, is that any more like, is that insignificant? Meaning those, those are individual lives. And sometimes the problem does not come with God's faithfulness or performing, performing his words. It has to come right down to how we measure. It's how we perceive and how we measure. And oftentimes in our carnal thinking, we value things very differently than God does. We assess them very differently than God does. And you know what's amazing is if you've heard the story of the Moravians, the Moravians had a hundred-year prayer meeting in Herrenha, Germany. They were led by Count Zinzendorf. And ultimately, you hear the stories of from that praying community that pretty much every missionary uh, endeavor is the fruit of their lives. But you know when we hear that, we think of it in a certain light or in a certain translation. Do you know that some of that, what that looked like, is young men getting on a boat and going and selling themselves into slavery so that they could bring the gospel to where the gospel could never be preached unless they were slaves because the slave owner did not allow the gospel preached on that island. 
But oftentimes we're thinking about the multitudes and the mass movements and we forget that that was the missionary movement of that day, of going to the unseen, to going to the uncared for, that it wasn't being broadly proclaimed or announced. It was a very secret place that they were going to labor. But you know that when they were upon upon that boat, as they could hear mothers and family members crying out for them because they knew they would never see them alive again. Those young men, all they could hear from the shore was, oh, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. Oh, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. Some of us may be very familiar with that statement and that declaration, and some of us that may be very new, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to teach you from the word today that ultimately if you will live your life through the lens of, oh, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering, if that is your great ambition, if that is your great obsession, you will find strength to endure. Because you know what? We need to get ruined with a vision for something that is far beyond our minuscule, small lives. Most of us here today that are frustrated and discontented and depressed and anxious, it's because your focus is upon yourself. And I know some of us, even in ministry, you can be like, my focus isn't upon myself. I'm giving my entire life for the preaching of the gospel. But you know how that looks like? It looks like when you, when you have an offense with someone and that becomes your driving factor rather than obedience to God and forgiveness. That opens up the door and then all of a sudden you're discouraged. I don't care if you're in full-time ministry. I don't care about your position in life. Our path forward and our way of finding strength and fulfillment is being obsessed with the glory of God in the earth. And I'm going to say to you this morning, I want us to take a step back and assess. Ultimately, are we people that have moved beyond are we people that have been disturbed with, uh, from our own life and our own comfort and our own smallness? To a place that we are obsessed with a vision for the glory of God in the earth. So for me, as a 16-year-old girl, you know what's interesting is I was kind of on this journey of praying over this college campus for six years. It was vacant. I'm going to be honest with you too, even that one, going to that campus year after year. Year after year, going, God, you've given me words. You've said that you're going to preserve this for the, the well of missionary sending. How are you going to do that? gathering intercessors. I would have friends that are, you know, national and international leaders be like, what's the status on that campus? Still vacant, and I'm still praying. <laughs> I'll never forget it was during praying over that campus that Lou Engel, it was at the beginning stages of the call, he was out in Pasadena trying to gather a group of us to build the house of prayer there in Pasadena. This was like in 2004, 2005, and I remember sitting in his living room when he was gathering his sons and daughters, and you know what I said to him? I said, I can't leave New England. I'm praying over an abandoned college campus. It sounds crazy, right? Sounds so insignificant, right? But you know what I'm going to tell you today? When you've come into a place of friendship with God and you're in agreement with his heart and his purposes, and it's, it's very specific and it's very unique for each and every one of us, there's, there's almost like a task, an assignment that he's entrusted to us. When you've locked onto that, you have such a sense of purpose 
that it doesn't matter what national or international ministry or even what job opportunity or possible security you could find, there is a place where you're walking in friendship with God. And do you want to know, friends, ultimately that is our high calling, to live in agreement with heaven, to live in agreement with his purposes. And so for me, all of those years of delay and then slowly basically seeing prophetic promises come to pass, we started, for those of you that don't know, Lou Engel is also who basically called us up. He had a, a J-Hop in D.C. and he was like, hey, I want to plant a J-Hop in Boston. And I was like, nope, don't have a heart for that. I'm praying over this college campus. <laughs> you know, so like pray, three times asked, I ended up praying and fasting and the Lord reminded me to go back to a word that I received in Redding, California the previous year. And it wasn't until I listened to that word, and actually in the word, the, the gentleman specifically talked about Boston being cross. No, actually, I'm sorry. He, he started with Bradford. He said, have you ever heard of a place called Bradford College? And at that point in time, it was still sitting vacant and empty. And, he, and as he said it, my eyes all welled up with tears, and he said, it's the crossroads for revival to the nations of the earth. And you know what he went on to say? He said, as you see an awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it'll be a catalyst for the student volunteer missions movement that you've seen in your spirit. It wasn't until I went back to that prophetic word, it was the first time I heard anything, anything on my radar about the college campuses of Boston. I went, oh, I've had a vision for student volunteer missions and sending. I didn't understand that it's going to be the fruit of campus awakening and all these pieces start coming together. Can I say something to you? When Lou asked us to come here after praying three times and then me remembering that word, I was like, okay, God, this is you. This is totally you aligning all of this. So say yes. We do 40 days. It's thundering. Every night, there's like 200 people gathering at the First Baptist Church. There's 24-7 worship and prayer. Very prophetic. <laughs> they all leave. All of the DC team leaves, and I'm left with three people. I'm going to tell you, for that first year, it was anything but easy. It was anything but prophetic swirls. It was difficult. I ate donated oatmeal that was expired from food pantries for, like, the entire year. You know, it was kind of hysterical because I lived in Cambridge for that year. It was before I was married. And so many times, like, even now, because I've, you know, I've been in and around Cambridge for over 10 years now, people will ask me certain things about restaurants or things like that. And I'm like, oh, when I lived here, I actually didn't eat. You know, and every, everybody's kind of like, oh, you just lived a life of prayer and fasting. I'm like, no, I had no money, and all I did was stay in the prayer room. <laughs> like, I, I definitely was not here trying out all the great international food. Like, <laughs> no grid, no context for that. I was locked up in a prayer room. But you know what's interesting is like the journey of watching that first year and then the second year and the unfolding of things. I'm going to be honest with you, none of it really is, there's high points, let's be honest. There's high points that are exciting. There's high points that kind of fuel you and envision you. But I'm going to be honest with you, the rest of it is utterly ordinary. The rest of it can be difficult and disillusioning. And I'll never forget it. It was the first year. So a good friend of mine was trying to convince me to move someplace else where there was a job opportunity instead of me plowing a prayer room all by myself in the basement of this first rental. And I remember I said to the individual, I said, even if God never speaks another word to me, he has spoken to me too clearly to ever question what he's called me to do. I remember 
remember saying that. I remember the sliding glass doors I was looking out. I'll be honest with you. There are days that I remember those words and I think, oh, dear Jesus. (laughs) But you know what? As soon as you to recount the prophetic promises that God's given you, there's life and there's strength and there's vision. And this is why, you know, some of you are like, how does this apply to me? You know how this applies to you? Is every single one of us has something that God has placed in our hand. Every single one of us has a a place of calling, a place of authority, a place of destiny. Every single one of you has a place that God has called you to walk in friendship and partnership. There is an expression and a reality of Christ that it can only be released through your life. And oftentimes we're so busy comparing ourselves to one another that we actually can't get a hold of the individual call and destiny. We're trying to change it and contort it and make it into something else where all along God is trying to call us and beckon us. But also in that, I have realized that from ministering to this generation, we are vastly, vastly confused in understanding the issue of trial, challenge, difficulty, delay, and hardship that other people walk through. Somehow we look at the Heidi Bakers of the world or the Lou Ingalls of the world. We look at those people and we think somehow it's easier for them. They didn't have the emotional struggles I have. They didn't have the chemical imbalance. You have no idea the places of struggle and pain and challenge in the very lives that you see victory and breakthrough. You have no idea the secret places of wrestling and hardship. And the greatest strategy of the enemy is he isolates us. There are things in in every single one of your lives today that you think nobody else deals with. Nobody else knows. Nobody else has this challenge. That is the most isolating and debilitating thing. And I'm going to tell you one thing. Because when you get to minister to a lot of people, and you get to hear a lot of stories, there's a little passage in the Bible that says, all things are common amongst the brethren. And the more you get to know people's really private lives, The more you understand, there is not one person on this planet that is not wrestling in a dimension or a degree. There is not one person that is without pain and challenge and hardship. But it's ultimately how they choose to define, interpret, and handle that place of crisis. That is our defining factor. It's whether we enter into a place of such condemnation and guilt and despair because we think we're the only one, or we come to a place of understanding, oh, no, 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 all things are common amongst the brethren. That I may struggle, you know, whether if you struggle with shame or condemnation, whatever that area of struggle is for you, understanding that there are multitudes of others. It may not look the same. It may not dance the same. It may not smell the same. But pain is universal. And ultimately, no one can escape it. And you want to know why? Because we live in a fallen world. This isn't heaven, folks. I mean, sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you, we think and we live in such a way that it's supposed to be. Like, why is this hard? Why is there sickness? Why is there disease? Why is there death? Why is... No, no, no. That we haven't arrived in heaven yet. You have a fallen body. It is 
And we're dealing with carnal earthly people. And do you want to know something? Your frustration and your discontentment is because you're yearning for heaven. We're not rightly deciphering and categorizing and understanding the nature of our struggle. And so I say all that to say, <laughs> me turning 40, I realized a couple of things, is that in my 20s, I fasted three days a week. I fa it was just, I mean, this isn't, I don't do it now, clearly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I fasted three days a week. I, those three days, I spent locked in my word, room in the, in the study of the word, in prayer. The entirety of my social life and my dating life and why there was none <laughs> was all centered around the place of being consecrated to God. There was an understanding that I had in my 20s, and we, Daryl and I were part of leading a youth ministry, and there was such an understanding in that place of what it meant to go hard after God, of giving up everything else, of having no attachment to this world, but a place of full surrender, radical obedience, radical surrender. That was the reality of our 20s. And to be honest with you, me quitting my job coming in Boston and living basically homeless in the beginning stages in dorms, having uncertainty about my future, absolutely no financial security or backing. In my 20s, there was no place of reservation of abandoning all to Jesus. But you know what I began to realize is that then you have a kid and you're sleep deprived. You go through a ton of hormonal and physical changes. I recently said to Daryl, you know, it's the first time I was doing this. After I had Abram, I had postpartum depression. I didn't know it because for me, I'm just like, Ugh, I'm tired, I'm confused, I'm overwhelmed. You know, but I look back and I was like, I was in such a dark fog, but I just kept moving. I just kept showing up. <laughs> and eventually it lifted. You go through all of these things, and I realized in my 40s, I was like, oh, as I'm approaching my 40s, I've somehow taken a different philosophy in life. I've somehow taken the philosophy of, I did my time. When I was single, it was easier to prioritize everything around the orbit of contending for the kingdom of God in the earth. All of a sudden, I had my son, and I'm consumed in the homeschool world, and I'm slinging homeschool lessons and homeschool co-ops, and, you know, you're in all of so many different facets of things. You're cooking three meals a day. Come on, Mom, give me a shout-out, and there's endless dishes! Come on! How do you find the supernatural in the eternal when you're in the grind of wiping your kids' butt? Come on! <laughs> It's exhausting. For those of you in the room that don't have children, it's the best thing in the world, but they will try every last nerve in your body. You'll question your salvation. I used to think I was such a patient person. I used to nanny. I was a nanny. I was like, oh, what's wrong with these people? They got five kids and they're losing their brain. I'm like, this is easy. Yeah, well, I showed up fully dressed with a full night's sleep and a face of makeup on my face instead of the poor woman who hadn't showered in three days. <laughs> I realized as I was approaching my 40s, and this is what, I'm going to get to the heart of our message. <clears throat> it's my introduction. 
is that there was a posture that I lived in my 20s and even in my 30s that through years of delay, through years of sleep deprivation, through years of it not quite going the way that I thought it was going to, of years of putting my foot out there and thinking, now was the time and now there's going to be breakthrough, of calling another 40-day fast and gathering multitudes to pray because we'll going to see revival, all of these things. Then you come to a place of just going, you know what, I'm a little tired. You know what, I don't actually think I need to expend as much. I'll just cheer on those other people that are. I'm in agreement within my heart, but I don't have what it takes to invest my heart and my soul. We can all find our reasons and excuses of why we are not wholehearted in our pursuit of Christ. But I'm going to tell you this right now today, that when we are not wholehearted in our pursuit of Christ... When we acquiesce to a life of complacency, and yes, I just said complacency. When we acquiesce to a life of apathy, when we acquiesce to even using spiritual terms of, I don't have to contend, I'm at perfect rest in God. Do you understand that the posture of contending for more is ultimately a place of confidence and rest in what he has promised? And so it's only for a posture of faith that you can contend for the more. Those of us that stop and cease contending, it's actually because we're in a posture of unbelief. That is not rest, my friend. That's called burnout. That's called you've stopped believing. You've stopped reaching, but yet the Apostle Paul, in all of his glory, in all of his apostolic power and anointing and fire, he says, not that I have already apprehended, not that I have already attained, but you know the language he uses in Philippians? But I press for the mark of the high calling. Do we understand the language of I press? We despise that kind of language in our culture and society. We despise anything that does not come for a place of ease and safety. We despise anything that requires toil and labor and somehow in our religious cloaks and mindsets. It all comes into, well, I have the fullness of Christ dwelling within me. Well, how come your shadow is not healing people then? He's made it all available, but guess what? It's available that that does not mean that you have now accessed it. There is a place where you posture and you position your life before God. And I'm going to show this to you scripturally, because some of you are kind of like, oh, it sounds like works. Absolutely not, but I am going to say this to you. He gives himself to us on the same appropriate level that we give ourselves to him. His love does not change. He loves you just the same. But guess what? Some some of us, we're not as useful to his purposes. He loves you just like I love my son. But there's a lot of things my son is not capable of knowing and handling or me entrusting him with. So the question comes down to maturity of as we mature, in Christ, he should be able to entrust more to us. And so today I'm not questioning our position before him 
as sons and daughters who are loved. We're loved. But somehow we cannot stay in that place of only receiving. There should be a place where we respond appropriately in love to him. I'm going to give you guys a couple of passages of scripture. I just referenced, um, for those of you that want a reference, um, I quoted Philippians 3.14, which I should stop and read it. (laughs) Sorry. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward prize. Do you want to know that when we have a vision of the upward prize, we then have grace to press? If we don't have vision of the upward prize... That's why we have no grace to press towards that. And we almost are satisfied and comfortable just living our dull, mundane, pathetic little lives. (laughs) Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, we see this same language, the same understanding of pressing and going after. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every hindrance. Now, Now, I want you guys to see the word hindrance and sin are separate things. It's not categorizing hindrances as a sin, but there's things in life that are not sin, but they are hindrances. Paul Paul said it best this way. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So those things that are hindrances here are those things that would be unprofitable in a life of pursuit of him. If they don't profit us in our pursuit of Christ. So he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Can you guys, I want you guys to say the word perseverance. How many of you guys, nobody answer me or raise your hands. How many of you guys feel like your life embodies that of perseverance? Mm. Most of us are like, I'm just, I did good just to get out of bed today right? We're all living like exhausted, tired, perplexed lives. And if you have an infant in this place, rightfully so. (laughs) No judgment, friend. (laughs) But I love actually the language that he uses here. He says, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Verse two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. In the New King James, it says, the language is, let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Do you understand the key to this place of endurance is looking unto Jesus? I want to ask you, assess your life in this moment. I guarantee any place of discouragement, any place of depression, any place where you just don't have the energy, it's because your eyes are on something and someone other than Jesus. You can put it in all its spiritual forms, but it comes down to that person disappointed me, that person didn't follow through with their commitment, I thought it was going to be this way, my expectation was this, and this is what I got, I got the prophetic word, the prophetic promise, all of the things, because ultimately we were looking unto someone 
or unto something other than Jesus. But you know, when he becomes our great reward, and he can add or he can take away anything that he wants to, this is where we find the strength to endure. Because our hope and our expectation are not fixed upon things. No longer is our emotional energy wrapped up in the hope and the expectation that we have in people. But it's in one man, Christ Jesus. So where it says, lay aside every hindrance. Lay aside every sin. We have to assess, what are those hindrances? What are those things that hinder us from running? And even if they're not necessarily categorized as sin... If they're a hindrance to us running, we should deal with them violently so that they will not hinder us. The same language here um, in 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run, thus not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, yet lest that when I have preached to others, I myself become disqualified. So here we understand this language of what it is. Ultimately, to enter into a place of a race, let's be honest, the the language and the metaphor ah, of a race is exhausting. I don't know about you. I don't run. I have no desire (laughs) whatsoever. After maybe this message, I will. But... (laughs) I don't want to expend unnecessary energy. But this whole language of to run a race, it's not something that comes easily. It's not something that comes casually. Do you understand? We don't have time today, but at one of the mission schools I teach, I literally take an entire session. It kind of almost sounds like it would be depressing, but it's not. (laughs) I take an entire session to go through scripturally and systematically all of the language that involves the word to wrestle or to contend so that we can fully understand that all of life is a warfare. There is an element of struggle that is a part of our life. And ultimately what it comes up to is those that wake up in the morning of saying, you know what? There's certain things, I'm I'm mentally prepared. Certain things are going to be hard. Certain things are going to be challenging. Certain things are going to be obstacles. Certain things are going to be painful. But that is the nature of this life. Do you understand that, that our fathers in the word of God in no way expected a life of ease and safety? They in no way painted for us a picture of except Jesus. And then you just have this heavenly glow that surrounds you. And it'll be like the Red Sea is always parting everywhere you go. And all things will be put into your hand. And all you have to do is speak the word and you'll possess all things. All wealth and riches and a husband and a house. Or how about this? We think, oh, I'm going to go preach the gospel in that city. Of course, there's going to be favor. And No, do you even understand the principle and the word of God 
that says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers of this dark age. Do you understand the nature of the battle that you are engaged in? And much of the outcome of your life has everything to do with your mental preparedness. Some of you are like, huh? <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm going to give you a little analogy here. <clears throat> if you guys know me, you guys know I had a really, really bad pregnancy. <laughs> and then I, so from my pregnancy, I went into my labor and delivery <clears throat> completely exhausted. Um, I puked for nine months. I, I, I'll just spare you the details. So I was really, really set. If you know me also, I'm really into natural things. I like the earth. I think things that God created. I'm not a fan of chemicals and things like that. So I'm all like, who needs an epidural, supernatural childbirth, man? My body was made for this. <laughs> right? It's true. Our bodies were made to birth babies. So I'm going to give you an understanding of how, when we, how we approach things mentally ultimately determines our response. So because I mentally read supernatural childbirth, because me and my husband went through the Bradley method of relaxation, you've, you learn how to relax every, come on girl, you, you know how to relax every muscle in your body, I'm going to like worship the Lord and put my earbuds in, ah, glory of God's going to fill the room. Abram will just be born in the glory. Like, this is how this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So Daryl's working nights. He was overseeing safety for a construction crew at that time. I was home for three days, count them, three days. I don't think I saw him in those three days because he worked nights and stuff. Three days laboring. Um, I had no idea that my labor that I was experiencing was not natural. I, I didn't know that there was problems and complications and things happening. So I'm at home laboring. And mind you, when I say laboring, I don't sleep. I'm puking. And I'm on all fours for three days. So I call the midwife. This is after almost like 72 hours. Um, I call the midwife because I'm supposed to have an appointment that morning. And I say to her, I'm like, hey, I can't drive to my appointment. She's like, why? I'm like, I've been in labor for three days. I was like, do you remember when you told me don't go to the hospital until you're three minutes apart so that you can just like deliver with no other things. I was like, I sometimes go to three minutes, but then I go back to like five, and then it goes to like 10, and then it goes to three. I'm like, I'm like all over the place. It's not consistently three. She goes, hmm. She's like, have somebody drive you, and I'll evaluate you. I get there. As soon as I'm there, I have a contraction, so I like throw myself over the table, because, and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's the only way I can get through a contraction. She's like, oh, you have back labor. And I'm like, what's back labor? She's like, mm, not the same. She's like, he's positioned wrong. Like, she's trying to explain it to me. She examines me, <clears throat> and she says, you're 100% effaced. Like, you're ready to go to the hospital and push. And I'm like, oh, cool. That's awesome. She's like, you did all your work at home. She's like, you're just going to go push the baby out. I'm like, okay. So I get there. I think when I got there, I was like around six centimeters, six or seven centimeters. So it's, you know, progressing. Yeah, we're like ready to have a baby. So... <laughs> Well, what happens is, as soon as I push, sorry if this is too graphic for you, my cervix swells shut. That's like just basically where the kid's head is supposed to come out. It swelled shut, completely swelled shut. And so at this point, Abram's in distress, and they're, you know, doing things, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And in the midst of all of this, still no pain medication, none of those things, 
I have a friend in the room, and I specifically had her there because she d- delivered two children naturally. And I thought, like, if there, I have a weak moment and I'm going to, like, ask, I, like, for epidural or something, I wanted her there as, like, a guide or someone that I trusted. So as I looked at her, I said to the midwife, I said, can I just, like, wait for all of this to subside and then just, like, try again? I mean, this is after three days of not sleeping, and she's looking at me like, what's, she, what's, wrong, what's wrong with her? You know? <laughs> and I look at my friend, and I said, should I just try to push to try, like, in, like later? And she's like, no, your child, his heart isn't, like, this is an emergency. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So, like, and before I know it, I'm in the ER, and I, you know, they they were already moving forward with all of this. And, you know, she came into the room the day afterwards, and she was, like, (laughs) teary-eyed. She's like, I have been a midwife for over 30 years. She said, I have never seen someone with three days of labor, back pain, the amount of excruciating pain that back pain is, not ask for any kind of pain medication. She's like, mentally, how did you, and I said, I just kept telling myself it was natural. And she's like, <laughs> you know, she could see. But, <laughs> but you understand, like, and, uh, like, and then accolades to my husband. She actually said, and in 30 years of being a midwife, I've never seen a husband coach like that. Did he go to school? <laughs> I was like, no, he's just super attentive. <laughs> I know, right? Um, all that to say, the same is true. The same is true. I have friends that go into labor going, oh, this is so unnatural. Like, this pain is unbearable. Like, the mentality, which is fine. To be honest with you, if I had it to do over again, give me that epidural. (laughs) I will take it. (laughs) But what I'm saying to you is that there's even a principle of that. If you're going into it in a place of being anxious and concerned and feeling like my body can't handle this, I was not made for this, this is unnatural, you immediately cannot endure the pain, because everything inside of you is saying, no. But when you have the mentality of, I was built for this. I was made for this. God made my body to birth children. All of a sudden, you're in a place of, no matter what comes at you, whether it's back pain, whether it's three days and you're not progressing, all of those things, you're still with that mentality of saying, I was made for this. And that is the mentality that we have to live with, is I was built for this. I'm not saying that we, in a a negative way, that we look for struggle. Please, let's be honest. We will encounter it no matter what. You do not have to go find hardship and difficulty. But when you live your life of understanding, I have been equipped with all of the resource of heaven. I do not have to fear trial. I do not have to fear difficulty. Because... There is a river of living water inside of me. All of the source of life, all of the source of strength, all of the source of wisdom that I can endure anything because I was built for this. Our mentality has to change. We have to move out of being an apathetic people, despising struggle and difficulty. You know, you can categorize it however you want. The world, the flesh, the devil. All the struggle is in there somewhere. You can define it as what the devil's bringing to you. You can define it because we just live in a fallen world. But between the world, the flesh, and the devil, somehow, whatever that throws at you, you should be in a place of saying, I was built for this. 
I am capable because I have all of the resource of heaven. And therefore, whatever it is that God has called you to do, if in this season, if it's schooling and getting a degree, you can understand that you can rely upon the grace of God to carry you when you're being stretched and it feels like you're stretched beyond measure. There's an anointing that's accessible for you, whatever it is that he's called you to. For those of us that are mothers, and I'll be honest, I shared this story yesterday with the community group leaders as just like a little inside, you know, story. Daryl and I, we love Jesus passionately. It was not our goal to do full-time ministry. Like, that's not necessarily what I would think is like the ultimate uh, I don't see that that being whatever, because for, for those of you, if you want to do full-time ministry, do it. But that wasn't necessarily the goal. And so I, even as a young mother, often find myself in positions of having to go teach for four days straight and 30 hours of material or sit in certain groups of people that have far more degrees and far more experience and, you know, basically having to minister in context where I feel like, God, I have to stand and sometimes teach and do things that my schedule, I'm a homeschool mom. Did you forget who I am? Did you forget that that's what I'm doing? My status in life, that I'm kind of taxed and and short on time and all of these things. But you want to know something that when I'm in the posture of like complaining, of kind of like I got to go do this and I got to go speak here or I have to serve at this thing or board meeting or whatever, instead it would, I change my mentality to a place of, God, this is what you have placed in my hand. This is the portion you have entrusted to me. So I'm going to, number one, thank you for what it is you've entrusted to me and view it as a privilege. And number two, I am going to hold you at your word that you are going to provide everything that I have need of. Because I'm not standing in this place or I'm not given this position because it's something I sought. It's something that you have called me into, so therefore you're responsible. Thank you very much. And do you understand that takes the pressure off completely? Because kind of like, I'm just being obedient. I'm just being obedient. And in a life of obedience, you can have confidence that God can carry you through challenges and difficulty. So this principle, I'm actually just going to really quickly, um, Matthew 13, 12. Just for sake of time, I'm going to give you guys some references so you can read them on your own. Matthew 13, 12. This is actually the parable that's speaking about um, the sower and the seed. I'm trying to figure out where I want to pick up for sake of time. I'm actually going to pick up in um, 19. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who bears, who bear, oh, sorry, hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he who has no root in himself but endures only for a while for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the, wor- wor- the word, immediately he stumbles. In this, um, 
If you study this out, it's actually the stumbling over offense. In verse 22, now he who received the seed along the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and who indeed bears fruit to produce some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. This is where you actually see this issue of degrees, and it has to do with the issue of endurance. It has to do with, this, they, were all, they all received the seed. They all received the love of God. It's accessible to all of us. We all can receive the word and receive the truth. But then there's this issue of how we respond. And he even uses the word, the issue of endurance. Those that endured for a season. And do we even understand that some of this had to do with the responsiveness to the seed, the cultivating of the seed. And this is where the place that we as individuals, we can receive a word from a God. We can receive prophetic promise. God can even move on us today with encouragement. But then the question is, is what do we do with that seed? There's a place of personal responsibility for how we cultivate the seed that God has entrusted to us. And I would challenge you, for sake of time today, I'm not going to go into all of them, but there is this principle that you will find consistently throughout the world, word, that to he who has, more will be given. But to he who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. You can find that in Daniel, the understanding of revelation. He who has wisdom and knowledge, more will be given. But to he who does not possess it, even what he has will be stripped from him. This is a principle in the word, and you know what it is? It's a principle of stewardship. Because in Matthew, it's speaking about the talents, that there was talents entrusted, and the person that multiplied and increased the talents, when the master came back, he said, well, more is going to be given to you because you dealt wisely with what was entrusted to you. And then the guy who buried his talent and all he had was the one that was left, he says, even what you have will be taken from you. Because you didn't steward it wisely. So when God moves upon our heart, when I'm given prophetic promise, what will I do with the seed that he's entrusted to me? Will I stand and I hold it and think, well, you're going to have to increase it. You're going to have to do something. When are you? Or he's saying, I've entrusted it to you. I've entrusted it for you to labor and to multiply. And if I'm faithful with the seed that he has given to me, even more will be given and it will multiply. But if I'm not, even what I have will be taken away from me. You know, in American culture, we don't like this principle of personal responsibility. Of that somehow we are responsible for what has been placed in our hand. That it's not God's job to increase it for you. It's our job to faithfully steward and guard, to contend over prophetic promises. That's what Paul said to Timothy. He said, use those words, the word, the prophetic promise, and wage a good warfare. Why wage a good warfare? That language of warfare is all throughout the word of God. It's because our lives will be filled with struggle. And you know, I'm going to close with this. Is I, we don't have time today, but you should go and look through Luke 18. Luke 18 is the, the parable where ultimately Jesus is teaching about the unjust judge. 
And basically, he would not award, the unjust judge would not award to the woman what she was asking for. But because of her persistence, it says because she cried out day and night. And he says, will God not avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night? The issue is not the, the, the unjust judge. That is in no way a picture of God. It's a picture of us as people that he has said that in order for you to prevail in this world, there has to be a place of persistence inside of you. You have to forsake that apathetic way of living in self-pity and despair and understand I was built for this. You find this language in Luke, Luke 11 when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray. He teaches them the Our Father. And then he goes immediately into teaching this parable, look it up in Luke 11, of a man that comes at midnight knocking on his door for bread. There's three men in the story. I'm going to lay it out for you. One comes knocking for bread. It says it was midnight and I was in, in bed with my children. A friend came knocking for bread. He didn't have bread to give to his children. He had no bread to give to them. It speaks of us that we do not have in and of ourselves. There is no shame that you have lacked today. There is only shame that we don't then knock upon the door of heaven. Saying, I'm in need of bread. Oftentimes we take our place of lack and we end up in a place of despising ourselves, despising our life, despising our circumstances, despising the portion we've been given, despising the family we've been given, the city we've been called to. Instead of saying, I'm in a place of lack, and the only appropriate response is then to knock upon the door of heaven and ask for bread. This picturing in, in Luke chapter 11, because it's midnight, it's when any sane person wants to sleep. It addresses that issue that we have of our need for comfort and security and warmth. And please do not inconvenience me. I'm going to say this to you today. If you are going to live a life that is fruitful, it'll be a life that is inconvenient. If you have made a God of convenience, you will never have a fruitful life. We have to forsake our idol of convenience and rise up from our bed even at midnight, put our pants on, leave the house, and knock upon the door. This picture is something where he's accessing heaven. He's accessing the resource of heaven. And lastly, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. All of these died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country that they can call their own. Verse 15, if they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. The issue is an issue of longing. What are we longing for? What is our great ambition in this life? Do you find that the heroes of the faith died not seeing the promise? Some of you are like, well, I don't really want to sign up for a life like that. Can I just say something to you? There's a place that we should desire more to be living in fellowship and friendship and agreement with God. The question is, is our life and our priorities in agreement with God? 
Are you standing in agreement with God with the desires of his heart? I want to ask you today, forget your desires. Have you ever asked God, what is the desire of your heart? Come on, you haven't even started living yet. If you haven't come out of the place of just your own carnal, lowly, pathetic desires to a place of going, God, what do you dream about? Do you know that that's the place where you'll begin to burn for the souls of man? Of dreaming of how can I see the gospel preached to the ends of the earth? Because when we begin to be awakened to the dream of God's heart, it is so far beyond our own small-mindedness. So twofold today as we close out, I number one, whoever you are today, whatever it is that God has entrusted to your hand. Number one, I want to say do not despise small beginnings. Do not despise even callings in the sense that if what God has called you to in this season, if you compare it to other people or if you compare it to other things, you'll always be discontented. But if you begin to pursue what God's placed within your heart, you are going to find a place of fulfillment and contentment and ultimately identity. Because you may not know it yet, but it's what he's fashioned you for. It's what he's formed you for. You know, what's funny is years ago, Daryl used to get words all the time about, I see you're going to plant many, many churches. And Daryl would be like, that person clearly does not know me very well. But it was kind of funny. Then we were kind of like, oh, I think we're planting a church. You know, like, but do you want to know something? I, we hear friends. We have friends that will come meet with us and question church planting. And ultimately, most of them are scared to do it, don't want to do it, hear all the hard things about pastoring. Several of them have said after they meet with Daryl, they feel like it is the most noble thing that they could put their hand to do and they have faith to do it. Do you want to know something? That's the place of following God's trajectory for your life rather than your own. Because you don't even necessarily know the giftings, the abilities, the calling, and what God will awaken inside of you. And it's a place of trusting his leadership for your life. Trusting his timing for your life. But you know, some of you here today, Hilltop may not be your home. That wherever God has called you to, to plow and to labor... I want to encourage you, put your hand to the plow. Do not seek a life of ease and safety and apathy because ultimately you'll just grow more and more discontented. But instead, find the purpose of God, of what God has entrusted for you. I'm actually, I'm going to read you guys one. Um, Eugene Peterson has <clears throat> a book, and it's called They Run With Horses. Um, it's actually, it's out of... Um, He's basically, this, this what I'm going to read, he's referencing in Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 12, um, if you guys aren't familiar with it. Basically, Jeremiah obviously had a very unique calling, and it was laced with a lot of struggle. Let's be honest, in, Je- in Jeremiah chapter 12, it's when the prophet is basically questioning God, and he's like contemplating giving up his calling. Kind of like, this lot stinks. The unrighteous are flourishing. You know, he's questioning the place of hardship. So instead of fulfilling his prophetic calling, he's almost contemplating just becoming um, an ordinary person and an ordinary citizen and and not partnering with the plan and the purpose of, of heaven over his life. Do you want to know what's interesting is as he's complaining to God, God's response to him is basically, if you can't run with the footmen, how will you ever run with the horses? 
God goes on basically to say to him, if you're weary and tired over this, you're in no way equipped or prepared for what I've ultimately am leading you to. And that's not, I'm not saying that as a rebuke to us today, although God was kind of rebuking Jeremiah. But, <laughs> but I'll be honest with you, that's when I told you guys earlier that turning 40, that I started realizing that there was places that I had grown weary. This is the passage the Lord spoke to me. If you're a weary running with the footmen, like meaning you haven't even, even fully entered the race of what I've called you to do. This is all preliminary. If you don't have the emotional resource to understand how to access heaven, how to gird up, this is the language the Word of God's used, gird up the loins of your mind. Do you know what that means? It means to have your mind renewed with perspective and understanding. That was the rebuke to me. Then how will you run with the horsemen? Almost like, how will you stand in the place that I've called you? And see, this is the issue that I'm going to say to us here at Hilltop right now, friends. You know, we're a community of dreamers. We dream those big things, right? We dream of the great harvest of souls. We dream of campuses being awakened. I want to ask you a question. When there is a great harvest of souls, who disciples the masses? When you have a generation come in that needs deliverance and healing and all of those things, who are the laborers that then labor to pastor and disciple? Who's walking in a place of authority that when there's need for deliverance ministry can be called upon? You know, we can dream great dreams. We can stand in a place of even praying for great things. But the question is, is that if we are weary when we're running with the footmen in this season of time, and in, in Jeremiah's time, it was actually speaking of even great judgment and hardship, more that was coming. I'm not necessarily pronouncing that upon America, but nobody knows the times and the seasons. And specifically, I'm going to say to you, if you're someone that is not acquainted with end times, I believe that this is a picture, and it's speaking to us if in this day and time, at a time of ease and safety and comfort, you're wearied, how will you ever endure during times of tribulation and persecution? And like I said, this isn't a rebuke to us, but it's a place where we have to say, God, I want to be one that can run and not grow weary. So I just want to say this to you today. I identified going into my 40s, hmm, there's a place of weariness inside of me. There's a place where I'm like, I have done my time I have pressed hard, and now I think I want a nap. <laughs> but can I tell you something, friends? 40 is really young. It is. I have the best years of my life ahead of me. And so you want to know something? Instead of thinking I've done my time, I changed my posture around that, that birthday of saying, oh, no, 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 no. I'm actually sowing seed now for my next season. And so I want to ask you today, what kind of seed are you sowing for the next season of your life, of where God is bringing you? How are you preparing your heart, your mind, your spirit to be able to stand in the place that God is calling you? 
And I want to encourage you today, if you are in a place of weariness, that is not from God. If you're in a place of somehow thinking that you need to withdraw from life, withdraw from responsibility, find a place of vacation. Can I tell you something? When Adam was set in the garden, he was not set there on an eternal vacation. He had perfect union with God. It was perfection. There was no sin in the earth, but yet God sent him to steward the earth, to cultivate the ground. You are called to cultivate something. And I'm going to tell you something. Most of the time, our fatigue comes when we're actually not cultivating what God has called us to. You will find strength. You will find endurance when you actually put your hand to do and to cultivate what God has called you to. And so I want to encourage us to realign our lives, realign our priorities, realign our perspectives. If you're someone that's always weary, I want to encourage you, there's probably far too much time spent in places that it should not be, and it is not fruitful. I have never heard a generation that is so retardedly busy. I say that meaning, like, it's not, it's, it's insane. They're not busy. You guys are eating out every night of the week. I mean, I, I, I run in a circle with moms, right, where you don't actually find a moment that you're alone. Like, when you put the kid in the car and you have to drive to the other side, you're like, oh, it's a vacation, vacation. I'm a party outside the car. All right, back to, yeah, here we are again. I mean, you look for those moments. I know every mother in the room is like, yes. If you don't have young children, you're living a vacation right now, I'd like to inform you. If you're not nursing a young one, your body's your own. You are like living in vacation land. I'm going to tell you something. Never has a generation had more resource available to them, but been so unproductive. Wasted. Wasted time. Wasted money. Wasted potential. Wasted passion, wasted emotion, wasted information. We're the information age, and most of it is needless. I want to encourage us to realign our perspective and realign our priorities. I want to encourage you today that there is a place of endurance that God wants you to walk in, and not because it's a drudgery. I'm going to tell you something, me re-signing up, Around my 40th birthday, it has in no way been laborsome. I have found more life and more strength in that place of once again taking the posture of not that I have already attained, I have already apprehended, but I press on. There is a place of life that is found there. And so if you're here today and you know you've just been in the weariness of life, no shame, no condemnation, but today for you is your wake-up call. It was said of George Whitfield in England that his voice was like an alarm that startled all of England out of their sleep. Do you know that some of us need an alarm to go off? That we're living in such a place of apathy and despair? And you know, Lou Engle actually says it, that basically that when you get a great awakening, it's usually because you've had a rude awakening. We need a rude awakening of our present circumstance and our dire
dire need for more of God. And if you today are acquainted with the fact that you need more of God, there is no shame in that game, friend. If you're acquainted with your need, Matthew 5 says, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Until you recognize your poverty of spirit, you can never possess the kingdom of God. Because you'll never have urgency. You'll never have desperation. You'll never have longing. But when you recognize your poverty, all of a sudden there's spiritual desire that's awakened inside of you. And so for those of you that have felt as though you have been living in the weariness of this life, and you know that today is a day for that God is calling you to cultivate, to steward what he has placed within your hand. I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to pray that discouragement, despair are breaked off, broken off of us as a community and that we come to a place of re-engaging our hearts, of re-engaging our lives. God, we come before you this morning and God, we thank you, Lord, that your, your mercies are new every morning. God, I thank you, Father, that you are continually reaching after us. God, I thank you, Father, that when we go wayward, God, that you do not leave us alone. But God, that you are forever pursuing us and calling after us. And so, God, I just want to, I want to thank you, Father, for never leaving me alone. But God, in seasons, Lord, where I have been dull and I have been dry and I've been discouraged, somehow, God, when I did not have the grace to reach for you, God, you just keep reaching after me. You just keep calling after me. And God, I ask, Lord, that as a community of people here today, Lord, that even as the psalmist David said, your voice said unto me, seek my face. And my heart's reply to you was your face, oh God, I will seek. God, I thank you, Father, for every person under the sound of my voice, God, that we have heard your voice today saying, seek my face. And Lord, we say that this is our heart's reply to you. Your face, oh Lord, we will seek. God, we want to be people that live in the posture of seeking after you. God, we want to be people that even take the posture of the Apostle Paul. Not that we have already attained, but we continue to press on. And so, God, I thank you, Father, today, Lord, for those under the sound of my voice. God, that discouragement would be broken, Lord, today. Lord, that every place, God, I, I ask, Lord, even specifically for those that have interpreted hardship, is somehow you have abandoned them, or somehow you've forsaken them or forgotten them. I just want to say to every person under the sound of my voice, God has not forgotten you. That in seasons of delay, it is not his denial it is just simply a, a posture and a moment of waiting. And so, God, I ask, Lord, every place Lord, that we have wrongly assessed you, Lord, that we've even wrongly assessed our circumstances and our life. God, we ask, Lord, today, Lord, that we truly would see our lives through the lens of heaven. 
God, I ask, Lord, even right now, for every person under the sound of my voice, God, I ask, Lord, that every lens of discouragement and despair would be broken in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask, God, that every lens of offense, of being offended with you for your your timing and your ways and your delays. Lord, I ask, God, for every place that we've seen you through a carnal lens. God, we ask, Lord, that those perspectives and paradigms would be broken and shattered today and God that we could see you afresh and anew and Lord we ask Father that even as Paul declared that his eyes were fixed upon the author and finisher of his faith Lord today as a community we take our eyes off of people we take our eyes off of finances we take our eyes off of circumstances in delay Lord I ask Lord even right now under the sound of my voice God whatever it is that our eyes have been upon, expose those things, Lord, that we have fixed our gaze upon, that have robbed us of our joy, have robbed us of our strength, that we would take our eyes off of those circumstances. And Lord, once again, fix our eyes upon you. Thomas Kempis, one of my favorite writers, says that when God is far, everything becomes difficult but when God is near everything becomes easy that somehow the hardest circumstances somehow the hardest trials when God is near and when our eyes are fixed upon him we find grace and we find ease because he is near so God we say Lord we we only want to live Lord a life that is near to you God, we only want to live with the cry in our spirit, oh, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. Oh, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. That we would view all of our life, all of our challenges in light of your glory, Father. Lord, glorify your name through our lives.